seasons end I heard somebody say That it might never snow
the strange brew podcast my name is jason barnard and that was marillion and seasons end at there with friends at st david's album released earlier this year i got a huge pleasure to welcome steve rovery here to the strange brew to talk about their forthcoming tour and highlights through the journey of marillion welcome steve hi jason thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me oh you're very welcome the first thing that we we definitely need to discuss is the forthcoming Marillion tour, the light at the end of the tunnel. And does it feel like the light's coming? Well, it's a, it's still, we've, I think we're still in a very strange and surreal place, really, with the pandemic. Mm. It's two months away, beginning of the tour. But I, you know, I'm still kind of nervous about the about the concept. Uh, I did do a live show in, in Poland last month uh, in Gdansk, right. special guest to Riverside. And that was my first live performance in nearly two years. 
And that was a very strange feeling walking onto that stage. But yeah, I mean, the Marillion audience is the best in the world. So it, every night's going to be incredibly emotional. But it's the whole, you know, the, the pressures that you're under can't afford for any of us to catch it. And because if we did that, then obviously, you know, the tour mm. is in jeopardy and, and it's everyone's livelihood. So it just means we're going to be bubbling with just like the band and the crew, which is, it's not really how you're used to touring, you know, like no, no backstage guests, no after show parties. It's going to be a very different sort of experience. But at the end of the day, it's all about the gigs. And if we can, and I know the gigs are going to be amazing because it, it just means so much to so many people. And this is, this is going to be a celebration of us all getting through this, at least so far. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a bit of a, a theme that I have with speaking to musicians is that um, subject to the, the apprehension and, and getting over the understandable nervousness of playing live and, and everyone being in that live setting making it through or getting through such a hard time does feel like there's a hopefully an element of celebration there yeah definitely I mean I just I don't know about you but I mean I was kind of looking forward to being double vaccinated and then feeling mm. if not bulletproof at least pretty well protected but then the whole delta variant came around and you know bit us all in the ass again and um there's still that sense of nervousness because there's still a real risk for everyone so you know that hasn't gone away it's less than it was and i think all our lives are now about um managing risks as opposed to just things going back to how they were two years ago definitely and i think this is the first million talk after with friends from the orchestra and it, and if i'm right how will the set compare i mean there were some tracks on your previous tour that kind of had an extra grandness due to the the orchestration like season's end um yeah how will you be mixing it up this time around no i mean we, we won't have the, the the players with us this time so it's it's kind of more more back to the classic marillion sound uh but you know we, we're choosing the set very carefully and it and it is going to be a party you know we, we, it's going to be a, a great selection of the classic marillion songs um mixed in with a new track from the new album yeah I know. I just know it. every night's going to be incredibly special. And there's quite a lot of uh, build-up and, and people looking forward to um, an hour before it's dark as well. Is there anything that you can say about how that's shaping up? Well, Mike Hunter starts mixing All Being Well on Monday. So uh, we'll have hopefully the finished album by the end of September, but it won't be coming out until February or March because... That's how long everything takes these days with that, that, this insane lead time you need now for vinyl. Mm. And, and even things like you know, world cardboard shortage. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you could never imagine that being a factor. But unfortunately it is. But, um, yeah, the album will be out before we, we do our next live shows next year when we, we do the Marillion weekends around the world. But, yeah, no, it, it's it's been a long process, the writing and the recording of this album, doing the... The, the lockdown and, mm. and, the, and the pandemic but uh, I think you know I'm really proud of what we've managed to achieve the fear album it, for me it seems to have set quite a high bar is that something that you think and does that add add pressure yeah it definitely adds pressure yeah um you know I, I think it, it is a, a high mark that's difficult to maintain or, or surpass but I think there's there are definitely moments where we, we have surpassed it I think with a new album we'll just have to see how people like it but uh, I think there's, there's some, some amazing music and some very powerful and moving uh, moments on the new record. And Steve's lyrics seemed quite topical. Things like El Dorado, and, which were kind of touching on topics like immigration. 
do you get a feel for the sort of tone of the record in terms of the sort of themes? Will it will it be quite broader or, or will it address social issues? Uh, well, it's a bit of a mixture, really, this record. I mean, I think Steve started out with the intention of not writing about the pandemic. Um, but I think, you know, when we've all lived through the last two years, it can't help but creep into your work when you're when you when you're doing this because there is a, there's a certain uh, element of like social commentary I suppose in 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 lyric writing especially the way that Steve writes um so yeah that that has has crept in as you will you will eventually get to hear hmm. with, with a record but I think yeah it's it's there's some incredibly powerful and moving moments that's great to hear and and the fear album was uh had such a sort of high chart placing over here and one of, one of the highest um, placing for, well, I think since uh, the, the late 80s, really. And it, it does seem to be a, the fact that the way that music industry is now is that there's such a broad fan base that you've got enables Marillion to be a really big presence these days. Yeah, I think no one's selling any records. So and because we have this amazing fan base, um, you know, I mean, I know that the, the Fugazi reissue was like, I don't know if it was a midweek chart, but it was like number nine in the charts, which was incredible. So I would imagine that the new Marillion album, when it comes comes out, at least the week of release, will you know will be top ten, if not top five. So I think it's you know it's it sends a a positive message out for the people to pay attention to that sort of thing. I mean, I think Marillion fans aren't so so interested, but it, it kind of makes a point about the strength and. The passion of, of 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 our of our fan base, really, and for me as well, that's something that that marks Marillion out as unique and special. Is that you haven't followed the vagaries of the musical styles; you've always followed your own path ever, ever since. A script for a, a Jester's Tear, which was very much kind of different to the music scene at the time, but the live relationship with the fans, even at that early stage, seemed to be very clear. Yeah, I think that there was an integrity always to the, to the band that people pick up on. You know, I mean, we came out, I mean, first of all, past the whole punk new wave thing and then the whole new wave of British heavy metal and all that kind of scene. But, you know, we people discovered the band in the early days and we were their thing, you know. It was either us or, or bands like Iron Maiden, um, but for the for the young music fans, we 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 were kind of like the the up and coming young band, um, and I think we've always maintained that sort of relationship with with our that fans that they they value the integrity of the band and the fact we've never tried to be fashionable. You know, we're we're like the anti-fashion really. So it's, it really is all about the music, and and great music stands the test of time. You know, you can listen to some of those 80s bands and, and uh, mm. some of it ages well and some of it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, even when I listen back to that early material, uh, songs like uh, Chelsea Monday, it could have been made at any point in the past 50 years, really. And, and it kind of fits that classic mould and, and doesn't sort of date like uh, the 80s contemporaries. Yeah, no, that's the thing. I think um, great music is timeless because it's not trying to be of its time. It's not trying to be, hey, this is, you know, this is a drum loop that everyone's using or this is a sound. You know, you, you kind of exist outside of that, really. So it's all a case of creating something that you think works in, in the way that works for you and you put it out there and, and hopefully it resonates with people and, and it means something to people and, uh, you know, becomes a part of their lives.
labyrinth of London Playing games with faces in the neon wonderland Perform to scattered shadows On the shattered cobbled aisles Would she dare recite soliloquies At the risk of stark Chelsea Monday.
I was reading recently about the, you know, the recording of Misplaced Childhood and, and going over to Berlin and Hansa Studios. That must have been a really interesting experience going over to Berlin, given that the climate that was around, as well as the the special nature of that studio. Oh, it was it was incredible. We weren't really aware so much of the history right. of the studio. It was just that Chris Kimsey had just worked there with Kim and Joe. And, you know, we'd heard a little bit about it, but we, we weren't kind of like really clued up to the history of it. But Berlin at that time was just such an amazing, vibrant city. You know, it was like an, an island in the middle of kind of East Germany. And uh, you get a lot of um, artists and students there, a lot of people going there to avoid getting conscripted, I think. So it was, it was like a real feeling of a city living on the edge and yeah, incredible. Unlike any anywhere I've, I've ever experienced before or, or since, really, it was it was something quite magical. Uh, and yeah, we all aged about five years and three months we were there, but we had a bloody good time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you were recording that material, and, and that's I guess that's the same today. Do you know that there's something special there that might resonate with the fans? Um, I think we're quite unique in the fact that we write for ourselves. Right. You know, the, the people we, we're trying to satisfy are, are, are literally ourselves. So if we can write something that we, we're proud of and that we enjoy, you then it's like it's like a child. You know, you let them out into the world and, and hopefully they're going to thrive or not get knocked down by a bus. It's a strange thing because that, the whole reason we, we can still do this and still be excited by it is because we're not trying to create for a market, we're just trying to create stuff that we generally enjoy. And do you think that the success of Keeley meant that, that the record label was trying to sort of market you in a particular vision for the band? And, and do you think that that was a sort of difficult time to navigate or was it just made it easier because it brought things up a level? I think it's, it, it pushed us into the stratosphere in terms of our, our billing and, and how known the band was. You know, it was like... Hmm. You can walk around a supermarket without people staring at you because you've been on top of the pops half a dozen times or the Wogan show. But we we still weren't a pop band, so it was it was a little bit of a bizarre thing, you know. I mean, Lavin did it pretty well as the second single, Heart of Lothian, Died of Death, and and nothing released after that really crossed over in that same way. So it was a little bit of a freak for it to have that sort of crossover hit. But it was great for the, for the album sales. It was great for the profile of the band. It's been great for paying my mortgage. Um, yeah, it's uh, you could argue that the, the band wouldn't exist if we hadn't have had that level of success because it's on all these compilation albums. You know, yeah. you know, literally hundreds of eighties compilation uh, albums. So yeah, it it was a very important part, even if it does mean that people. That's all they can think of now. If they hear Marillion, they think Fish and Kaylee and Scottish heavy metal band. Um, but that's just, you, you're better to be known for something than, than not known at all. Blossom in the market square Do you remember? I thought it was confused 
seems to be quite a, a turning point in the band such a, a consistent album with so many great songs on there especially uh, the great escape do you think that that marked a turning point that was a, a period where the whole band was starting to collaborate on the music so did that help in that everyone was pitching in yeah i think it was after holidays in eden where you know we were under pressure to have hits and uh, we put with a pop producer and it kind of almost happened but it didn't so then we just wanted to make the album we wanted to make uh, and Brave was kind of that reaction to that, what we maybe felt like as the only time in our career we had that sort of pressure. But I think, you know, it's a great artistic achievement, but it put the final nail in, in the coffin of our relationship with EMI. You know, we got to make one more album, but I think it uh, it sort of damaged our relationship to the point where, where you know, there was going to be a parting of the ways. So it's... it's um, it's an album that I'm very, very proud of, but it, it was like a like a crossroads for the band's career, I'd say. I assume it must have stood at odds with the, the music scene at the time, but you kind of sticked to your own voice, and, and I guess that that's what's seen you through. Well, yeah. Yeah, like I said earlier, you know, you make music that you, you want to hear it in a way, and it was our first experience working with Dave Megan, and uh, EMI had had this idea of putting us with this young producer trained by Trevor Horn, and we were going to make an album in a couple of months. So we went down to Miles Copeland's chateau in, in the Dordogne, had, a, had all this equipment set up in this brawling old chateau with multi-tracks, recorders, and, and cables going across the battlements. You know, and we came away from there without even finishing the drums. So that was the kind of shape of things to come in, in, in terms of you know, spending seven months to make an album that was supposed to take two and, and the pressure that that put on our relationship with EMI. But, you know, it was one of those things like you either make great art or or you uh, try and keep the record company happy. So we kind of think we knew we knew we were kind of on thin ice, but we thought, well, you know, you have to see this through. If you if you feel like you're making something that's incredibly special, you, you've got to give it, give it your all and, and in a way to hell with the consequences.
Afraid of Sunlight seems to fit into that category. It wasn't a significant hit at the time, but, you know, he's a consistent seller. Again, a great collection of songs. There probably isn't a, a weak track there. Yeah. And people still listen and, and love that album as well as the title track, of course. Yeah, no, it's probably my my favourite album still in terms of the consistency of, of, of having such diverse but really strong songs. And it came together in a relatively short time. It was the first album we made from beginning to end at our own studios at the Racket Club, you know, on, on kind of what was kind of pretty low-end equipment at the time, the, the Tascam Digital Recorders. And we brought it in quickly uh, and under, under budget and um, I think a, a great artistic success, but we still got dropped. So, um, yeah, that was just... But what that did do, it enabled us to have a, a studio then that we could we could work on uh, and that we still work in, but, you know, we've vastly improved over the subsequent uh, 30 years to, to make it pretty state-of-the-art. And Marillion, obviously, pioneers in terms of crowdfunding. It's something that, that you guys did first and have continued to do, and that's seen you through without having to necessarily rely on a record company. Yes, I mean, after the three albums for The Independent, after after we left EMI and and, and how damaging that was to our career to then to have the idea of the crowdfunding and, and crowdfund anarachnophobia and push ourselves back up again um, and and set a model that, that is still used in the industry. You know, it is incredibly liberating. Things have changed so much. I mean, it used to be you needed a record company and you needed the full-scale support of the media to have any kind of profile in, in the music business. But now, because of, of crowdfunding and because of you know, social media and, and, and the great leveller, I suppose, that, that, that that's become, uh, it is more about the strength of your fan base. And we have got some of the best fans in the world. That's seen you through many different roads as, as you continued crafting music and things to seem to take a, a, an upturn at, at Marbles and, and again, seems to be one of the one of the albums that fans really sort of connect with absolutely i think working with dave megan again um on that album was it was a very important decision and yeah i, th- I think you know there's certain landmark albums for us i think sounds that can't be made again was one and and fear especially and let's hope that the new one will 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 be added to that uh for that group and neverland as a track is a huge favorite and um Again, that that feels quite grand in scale. Yeah, Neverland's a funny track for me because I, you know, I give it my all when we play it, especially live. And it's a, it's a track that it needs a certain intensity to to make it work. So you know, the sound of the guitar has to be just right. The volume has to be just right. So the guitar is like on the edge of feedback. So I just turn the guitar one way, and and, and the notes will start to feed back, and maybe the harmonic of the note an octave higher will feed in. So it is it's quite a it's not so much challenging, but it's a very specific place you have to go to to make that track work. Are tracks like that difficult to write as a band, or do, or do you just layer things and, and and add ideas as you go in terms of crafting it all together? What I think it depends. You know, you have some things that are great musical ideas, and sometimes you have something that's a great sort of basis of a of a lyrical idea, and, and occasionally they come together at the same time. But it, it, there's no one way of working really for us. I mean, these days we tend to write a lot more by jamming and taking those ideas and, and using them as the building blocks. Uh, but it's not always the quickest way of working. 
But, you know, with, there's so many different things. I mean, when you made so many albums and you've written so many songs, you know, we've, I think we've explored about every way possible you can, <laughs> you can make a song work.
When I hear Asylum Satellite 1, for example, your guitar tone is really interesting because you're not necessarily a shredder. You seem to go more for feel. Oh, absolutely. So for me, the guitar, it's, it's about feel, it's about emotion, it's about atmosphere, it's about playing what's right for the song. You know, I think more than any other instrument, the guitar can, can reach people uh, emotionally. So and that's what it's all about. I mean, I, bending and vibrato and, and, and sometimes phrasing you know, I'm more more concerned about playing something with that maximum emotion than I am with playing something fast. It's like, you know, music is like a dialogue, especially with the guitar, and, and you can say so much more if you're not in, in, a, in a rush. And also, you kind of, it sounds crazy, but you're, you're playing the spaces between the notes as much as you play the notes. Mm. That, that seems to have to be something that you have in common uh, with Dave Gilmore in the Every single note seems to count. He doesn't overplay. Exactly. You know, he's one of one of the uh, my three main influences. Uh, him, Steve Hackett, and Andy Latimer from Camel. Really, they they were my formative, I suppose, 
inspirations for the way I approach guitar. Loads of other people as well, you know, from Van Halen to Hendrix to Santana to Jimmy Page to Jeff Beck to, you know, all, all, all manner of different players. But those three were probably the biggest influence.
And something that people don't ask you about too much these days is the wishing tree. But uh, that's a period in, in your career that definitely sort of holds up, including the the first album, Carnival of Souls. And was that just a, a chance to go back to basics and, and be more directly involved in the sort of songwriting process? Well, the way that came about is we were making the Brave album at Miles Copeland's Chateau. And I had an offer to make an album for his, he had, a, he had an instrumental label called the No Speak label. Uh, and he offered me, I think it was 20 grand to make an, an instrumental album for his label. Uh, and I thought, well, that's, yeah, that's, that could be okay. But I'd rather work with another singer and, and, and do some kind of songs. Maybe, you know, I'd love, I love Joni Mitchell, Kate Bush, people like that. So originally I had the idea of working with Julianne Reagan from All About Eve, yeah. but uh, she wasn't really interested. And then I found uh, Hannah, um, and I, I loved her voice, and we started work, working together. I, I self-financed the album. I had my own record label, and, you know, it came out. It did reasonably well. It got a lot of profile in Italy. It did quite well in Japan, but it didn't set the world on fire, and, and I realised that running a label wasn't what I wanted to do. But it was, you know, it's an album, both albums, uh, that was Ostara, uh, uh, I'm incredibly proud of. And uh, and maybe one day we'll do, you know, we'll do another album together. Hannah's one of my best friends. And uh, although she lives in California with her husband, Paul, the drummer, mm. you know, we'll, we do see each other whenever we can, maybe a couple of times a year. And, and, you know, maybe one day we'll get a chance to make another record together. That seems to be a bit of an opportunity to express some of the more folk elements of your music is is that something you recognize yeah absolutely but to go back to the instrumental thing mm-hmm. i mean of course what i did do after that how many years ago now seven years ago now i, I decided to do an instrumental album i did my ghost Pripyat, uh album um and uh yeah so i kind of went back to that original concept of, of making an album of instrumental music but it's a very different thing i think that the thing that the wishing tree taught me was that <sighs> Maybe some prog fans, um, I don't know, they're not interested if it's too outside the general prog area. Mm. You know, I think if it's too folky uh, or um, if it just doesn't fit in with their preconceptions of what prog is, uh, is, tends to get ignored. So I had the situation with the Wishing Tree that the people that got it really loved it yeah. and, and everyone else would be just oblivious, really. So... Uh, yeah, it teaches you important lessons. And you mentioned your instrumental material, and it's definitely worth uh, mentioning that you've you've teased a, a track from your forthcoming album. Is it Lucilla, the, the track? Yeah, that's right, yeah, from uh, Revan Toulay, my, my new uh, instrumental space-themed album. Um, the other thing that's happening Monday, actually, is um, I'm launching the pre-order campaign for uh, a Steve Rothery Band live Blu-ray. Right. And I'll be posting a trailer on Monday and then a couple of other tracks during, during next week uh, for that. There's two shows in, in, in London, one at the Bush Hall and one at uh, Islington. Um, so that's good. It, it's, um, I really enjoy my solo shows. It's, it's a chance to get out uh, with a great bunch of people and, you know, have some fun, really. I mean, Marillion is, as an entity, you know, comes with a certain amount of baggage, let's say. Hmm. Um, so it's 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 a lot more about just the joy of playing when when you go out and do your solo shows without that pressure. I guess you just have a little bit more freedom in the sense. Yeah, well, you're in control, I suppose. You know, it's not a democracy of five people. You know, you're, you're the captain of the ship. You make the decisions. You uh, 
but you know, I've just, I'm just incredibly lucky that the group of musicians that I've assembled are, are, are lovely, lovely people who are just a joy to be with and uh, incredible musicians at the same time. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a win-win situation. That's great, Steve. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. I, I wish you all the best with your your solo release, uh, your solo album, the Marillion album, and, and the Marillion tour. It, it sounds like uh, you've got a lot on over the next year. Yeah, I like to keep myself busy. <laughs> anyway, good to speak to you, Jason, anyway. All right, thanks so much for your time. All right, cheers. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.